you know, I did have excessive uh, fears that were, were damaging to my life in certain ways. And so I'm glad I did some work to try to moderate those responses. But but fearlessness is not all it's cracked up to be. And, and by the end, I was more grateful for fear than I expected to be. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. What do you fear? I mean, really, really fear. And that's probably an extra loaded question right now when we're all stuck in our homes for weeks on end, afraid both for ourselves and our loved ones of a virus we can't even see. It might not be the question that you want to answer, but it's okay. And it's okay to be afraid. Fear is an important adaptation. Truly fearless animals and people don't tend to do very well. Fear is something we use to protect ourselves from things in the world that could hurt us. But sometimes fear can go too far. It can turn into phobia, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And in that form, it can really interfere with people's daily lives, their life goals, and their relationships. What do you do about that? Well, if you're Eva Holland, you do the research, try all the therapies for yourself, and then write a book about how you faced your fears. Eva is a freelance writer based in Whitehorse, Yukon. Her work has appeared in Outside Magazine, Wired, Bloomberg Business Week, Pacific Standard, National Geographic, The Walrus, and many more. And she's got a new book, Nerve, The Adventures in the Science of Fear. Welcome, Eva. Thank you for facing your fears for us. Thank you so much for having me. The first thing I was struck by when I started your book is that you're someone who people probably see as very gutsy. You're out doing 10-day whitewater kayaking trips. You ice climb in the middle of nowhere. You live in Whitehorse in the Yukon, which is really far north and has like weird weather. <laughs> these these are things that many people might be afraid of. Um, you don't seem like a fearful person. What made you want to write a book about fear? There's this disconnect, I guess, between sort of my, my writer persona because of, of the things I do and the things I write about, um, and how I feel on the inside and not just on the inside, but, um, you know, my friends here would think of me as a relatively fearful person in certain ways, I think, because they've all seen me, you know, when I do these things, they've all seen me cry because I'm afraid of heights, uh, you know, in the middle of a hike, sometimes I lie down on the ground and cry. And, um, and so there's this kind of, gap between i guess my my exterior persona and and how i actually live my life um and to me it felt like living here and trying to to keep up with my friends in the mountains and to you know to do the stories i do for outside and that sort of thing it felt like my fears were really constraining me and and hemming me in and preventing me from living the life that i wanted to live and so that was part of the impetus to to start this project, you know, initially it was a personal project to see if I could um, overcome my fears or, or make some progress towards um, overcoming my fears, at least. Uh, and then it, it became a professional project as well. It seemed to make sense if I was going to try to understand what was happening to me and to see if I could fix it, that I should that I should write about it. And I wanted to ask first about different kinds of fear. I think many people don't necessarily differentiate fear is just kind of this 
gut emotion that you have. Um, but you've actually divided your book into three broad fear categories. Um, can you talk about those categories and why you made that division? Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I sort of follow three rough strands and the divisions are imperfect, but I look at um, phobias, sort of the classic, you know, uh, specific phobias. I look at trauma um, and I look at, uh, I guess what we would call maybe existential fears, you know, fear of loss, fear of death is sort of the sort of the, the mushier stuff that it's harder to get a hold of. Um, and there's some interplay between those and, and part of my research was learning to understand the way those are connected and the way that they can be separated to the extent that they can be. But, uh, I, I was trying to categorize my own reactions to things and those seemed like the three main kind of groupings in my life. And then, uh, also it was just sort of a a tool to structure the book. (laughs) And it's funny because, you know, everyone kind of knows what fear is. Like, you don't, no one ever has to necessarily define fear for someone else. When you say, I was afraid, no one says, oh, what do you mean? We all kind of know that gut punch. But I was actually really uh, kind of surprised when I was reading your book to actually read the definition of fear. (laughs) What is the definition of fear? Well, the one that I liked best, um, comes from a 19th century psychologist and he called it the anticipation of pain. And there are, there are other definitions, you know, you could define it by the, the physiological threat response that our body undergoes. But, but I liked that sort of neat, simple definition, the anticipation of pain that seemed to capture a lot of different types of fear to me from, from, you know, the fear of falling off the monkey bars to the fear of losing a loved one. Um, that's that you're anticipating pain in your future. Right. And that sometimes that's physical pain and, and sometimes it's emotional. Right. And what is the distinction between fear and anxiety? And you kind of get to this point at the very end of the book when one of the subjects you talk about, who we'll get to later, says she's not afraid, she's worried. Mm-hmm. And, and I was wondering, what what's the distinction there between fear and anxiety, fear and worry? Well, the classic distinction between fear and anxiety is that fear is a response to an immediate objective threat to your safety. And anxiety is a response to a perceived or potential or imagined threat to your safety. So the example I would use is fear is there's a bear in your campsite. Um, you know, the grizzly bear walks into your campsite, let's say. And anxiety would be lying awake in your tent at night, worrying about a grizzly bear walking into your campsite. It's about the potential. And then anxiety to maybe a problematic level would be lying awake at night in your tent, worrying about a grizzly bear walking into your campsite when you're not in bear country. So it's sort of these gradations of, of threat that seem to, to distinguish fear from anxiety and then worry, I guess would be sort of a, a lesser form of anxiety. Anxiety has become sort of a clinical term and worry is, is something we can do in, in non problematic ways. Um, but, but these definitions, these distinctions, they're useful, I think for helping us order, order our experiences and think about things, but they do come apart if you push on them too hard. Um, 
you know, I found an author uh, who was trying to explain this distinction and, and the examples she used for a clear objective threat that would cause fear were the nuclear bomb and a terrorist. And I thought, well, is there any better example of something that's also can also be a perceived or imagined threat that hangs over your head, even when it's nowhere nearby, you know, like the, the, the bomb was sort of looming large in people's minds for decades uh, without them ever actually being at risk of, of being blown up. (laughs) Um, And, and the same goes for, for terrorism or something like that. I think, you know, the pandemic is a perfect example of something that's both a clear and present threat and uh, a matter of, of sort of perception and imagination and and future concern. So they're kind of partially to mostly overlapping Venn diagrams. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now people often think of the modern era as being one of anxiety. (laughs) There's this idea that suddenly everybody has anxiety and, you know, it's a really anxiety provoking world out there. And it is. Um, But it turns out that's not a feature of our modern world necessarily. Um, Hippocrates treated anxiety and phobias as well. Um, What did he think caused phobias and fear? Hippocrates thought that these symptoms he was treating in his patients were caused by an excess buildup of black bile in the brain. Um, and that was, that was actually progressive for his time that he thought it was actually a physical ailment because the, the prevailing belief at the time was that fear was, um, infused in us by the gods. So even just the fact that he thought there was a physiological cause, regardless of, of how wrong we now know him to be, was sort of a, a step forward. Um, and he, he treated them initially with, with something pretty reasonable, you know, exercise and improved diet. Um, but if, if that didn't work, then he would, um, use, uh, poisons to induce vomiting and diarrhea to try to get the bile out. I mean, yeah, Lord knows I have to get out my black bile all the time, (laughs) (laughs) which is to say black bile does not exist. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, and I feel like the study of fear um, kind of came into its own after the First World War. We're really fast forwarding in time here. Um, when people began to associate learned experiences with fear. Um, and in particular, you talk about the scientist John Watson, who conducted what I have to say is kind of a terrible thing to do to a baby. Mm-hmm. I, ah, <laughs> can you talk about this poor child? Yeah. So little Albert was, uh, I believe he was 11 months old and, um, Watson and his, I think she was his graduate student initially and later his wife, um, they, uh, they decided to see if they could, uh, induce a, essentially a phobia in this child. They, they were building on, uh, Pavlovian conditioning that had been fairly recently established. Um, but, uh, in a sort of more sinister might be overstating it. I don't think they thought what they were doing was sinister, but, but in a darker context than feeding dogs and getting them to salivate. Um, they took this boy and they first ascertained that he was not afraid of things like little white rabbits, uh, lab rats, a feather coat or fur coat and feather boa, this sort of thing. Fluffy, fluffy objects. They, they determined he had no fear of them. He, they let, they let him play with them. And then they started pairing the appearance of this white lab rat that, that Albert had previously been happy to play with with an enormous crashing sound right behind his head. 
and uh, the baby would, would would scream and cry and try to hide from the sound. Um, and then pretty rapidly, they were able to induce screaming and crying and fright and attempts to flee with the presence of the rat alone without the noise. Uh, and this is this is fear conditioning, and it's it's a sort of a foundation of our our modern understanding of of how this stuff works. But obviously, an experiment that would not be permitted today. It's it, it's you know it's incredibly abusive, and and uh, nobody knows what happened to little Albert. His identity his identity has never been positively confirmed. I think he was. They had intended to try to undo it, but his mother removed him from the hospital, from the lab, before they could try to undo it. So it's not known if he uh, retained his fear of fuzzy white creatures for the rest of his life. Oh, that poor child. Um, though I should note that fear conditioning in this classical sense, including like a loud tone and a negative experience. Um, so in this case, the loud sound was the negative experience, but... Um, in fear conditioning, as it's conducted now, for example, in animals such as rats and mice, um, they pair a tone usually with um, a harmless electric shock um, to produce the same kind of fear and avoidant response. Right. Yeah, it's still this this kind of thing is I, I came across it in a ton of the, uh, the research I read about the fear conditioning in rats is still super common. And a lot of the research that has been done um, has enabled us to kind of understand what happens in the body and the brain to trigger fear. And so I was wondering if you could talk about a fear experience in the body and the brain and how they interact with each other. What does fear look like? Sure. So the, the sort of old view, what, what I saw referred to as the Darwinian or common sense view was that the, the physiological fear response, the physical reaction followed the emotion. So you would, you would sense a threat, you would feel fear, and then your body would proceed accordingly. Uh, we don't necessarily think consciously about fear as a physical response, but, but if you, if you, if you dwell on it a little more and think about the last time you were afraid, I think you'll find that it is, you remember it in terms of tightness in your chest, um, you know, shortness of breath, maybe, maybe goosebumps, racing heart. Um, you can't necessarily tell that your pupils are dilated, but it's, it's all these physical symptoms of the fear response. And so what they, what they understand now is that actually the physical response comes first. So I'll, I'll walk you through an example. Um, let's say you wake up in the night in your apartment and you, you hear a noise. It sounds like maybe someone's in the house. Um, at that point, the noise will be carried, um, to the lower parts of your brain, it won't necessarily reach even your conscious awareness yet, like your cerebral cortex, but it will be carried to a structure called your amygdala that uh, basically manages threat assessment. And the amygdala will say, yep, someone in the house when they shouldn't be, that's a threat, like sound the alarm. And, and at that point, your autonomic nervous system will fire up the fear response. And so your pupils will dilate, your heart rate will accelerate, your breathing will tighten, um, you know, your, your muscles will be flooded with, with, with uh, energy to prepare, you know, what we call our fight or flight response. People are trying to move away from that terminology a little bit, or at least adapt it to fight, flight, or freeze response. But it's, it's a threat response, and it's, it's a physical preparation for, for action. Um, 
and then what they understand now what happens is that your your body sends that information about that physical response up to the cerebral cortex to to our conscious sort of human mind and and your body says oh look at this i have goosebumps my my heart is racing i'm afraid and so the the feeling follows the physical reaction which is seems strange at first but but once i thought on it i was like oh no that does make sense and it does even though it happens you know near instantaneously we can't we can't it does you can sort of you can sort of think your way through it i think if you if you remember the times you've been afraid and and it does make make a kind of sense and and that ordering of the you know the horse before the cart is is important to how we how we then try to manage these reactions medically and actually that um made me think of something that is going on now um, <laughs> with <laughs> the covid pandemic people are in many cases ordered to wear masks in public um and interestingly masks because they restrict your breathing um they make you pant uh and they can actually induce panic um and panic mm. attacks they can make you really afraid um because of the physical symptoms that you're having from wearing this mask Right. I hadn't heard that, but that makes total sense that your, your body would say, Oh, we, we're short of breath. We can't breathe properly. It, that's scary. Yeah. We're scared now. Um, it can become kind of a feedback loop. And one of the things that people often do when they are afraid is sweat. Um, <laughs> I'm sure many of us have had the nervous sweats and this, there's actually a, a reason for this sweat, um, on your hands, for example, increases grip. Um, so it, there is a reason. Um, but of course, one of the things I found really fascinating in your book was the idea that that sweat might carry messages. And it reminded me of the thing I always tell myself when I'm about to cross the street and there's a car that's supposed to stop and it's coming toward me and then it doesn't appear to be stopping. Every time I cross the street, I tell myself they attack if they smell fear. <laughs> and obviously cars cannot smell fear. Can humans smell fear? <laughs> we, it turns out that we can. Yeah. But it's, it's not what we think in terms of, you know, like that's, that's what we say, right? They attack if they smell fear. We talk about predators smelling a prey animals fear and seeing it as weakness. But, but what prey animals actually do when they emit what's called alarm pheromones is they're warning other members of their species. Um, so it's not a message to predators so much as a message to your peers that there's a threat coming. It's a warning system. And it's only relatively recently that we've learned that humans have alarm pheromones too. And we can, you know, obviously unconsciously use them to warn other people around us of a threat. So it would be more likely that the other pedestrians would smell your fear. <laughs> um, and perhaps uh, their their pupils might start to dilate, Their their heart might might accelerate if if they if they if they sensed how afraid you were of oncoming traffic. Well, I, I hope they can't smell my fear because I really did put on deodorant this morning. <laughs> um, but I was especially uh, in, interested in this whole smelling fear thing because a scientist literally tested this by having people jump out of planes, and I was wondering if you could talk about um, how they tested for the idea that humans could smell, quote-unquote, smell fear. Yeah, it's fascinating research uh, by a neuroscientist at Stony Brook. Um, and so what she did is she 
sent a group of first time skydivers up in a plane and she had them fitted out with, you know, all the, uh, all the biometrics <laughs> that she, that she could to monitor heart rate and all that stuff. But she also had them, she had them serve as their own controls. So she had them do the jump with a, with a fixed amount of, of time in free fall tandem tandem first they had to be first time skydivers and uh she collected their sweat i believe in the plane on the way up and then um she also had maybe it was after sorry i'm hazy on the details at this point but in any case she also had them run on a treadmill same time of day different day for the same length of time as the free fall and then collected that sweat so they served as their own control group and then um, they they used swabs of these two different sweat samples on test subjects who were also hooked up to all sorts of monitors, and they found a, a measurable difference in in the reactions to the fear sweat versus the exercise sweat. The fear sweat um, triggered various physiological responses, and then in a secondary phase of the experiment, they showed the the test subjects. Um, images of human faces with expressions ranging from neutral to sort of angry to very angry. And when they were inhaling the fear sweat, the subjects were asked to rate how threatening these images were. And they found the whole spectrum of expressions threatening when they were inhaling the fear sweat. Whereas when they were inhaling the exercise sweat, they didn't find the neutral or the ambiguous faces threatening. And so the, the suggestion is that, um, we have sort of heightened vigilance and and threat awareness and preparedness for a threat response when we're exposed to human alarm pheromones. And so I, I feel kind of duty bound to point out that pheromone human pheromones is is a pretty contentious area. Um most particularly because we're humans. And so the instant anyone says pheromones, they go, Oh, but can it help you mate? <laughs> because people. Um, and there's, I, I should point out, there's no really solid science on pheromones that help you mate. Um, there is some interesting science that there are human pheromones um, that are associated with the areolas of nursing mothers oh. um, that are important in, um, you know, helping with uh milk production and, and nursing behavior um, mm. in babies. Um, but yes, so there's <laughs> nothing about the mating, which is what everybody cares about. Um, but the interesting thing is that pheromones are not smells, necessarily. Um, what are people smelling? Do they know what it is that's in the sweat that's causing this response? Right. They don't. Um, it's not a an olfactory smell in the sense that we think of it it's a they they um the phrase is chemosensory cues uh so it's it's a chemical um it's a chemical reaction more so than like something you would be consciously aware of as a scent or an aroma um i'm not sure exactly beyond that what um what they know about the the sort of uh the the chemistry involved um, and I wanted to ask, you know, this book, um, you cover a lot about the science and what scientists know about fear, but you also went about facing your own fears. And that's something that a lot of people kind of feel they have to do. It's a very strong thing in our culture that in order to get rid of a fear, you need to face it. And I was wondering, why is that? Like, why do we feel 
that we must face our fears to overcome them. I think it's part of a larger story we tell ourselves about fear as weakness. Um, and so there's this sense of obligation to kind of like buck up and, and get over it, or it's a problem to be fixed. Um, and it, it can be, I certainly viewed my fears that way at the start of this project. I have a bit of a different perspective having come through it all. And I, I think that, um, we don't always, we shouldn't always feel obliged to face our fears. Um, it, it really depends on the extent to which they're impairing, uh, your life, you know, um, it's sort of a, a personal call, I think, but yeah, it's, it's part of this cultural narrative that we have about fear as weakness, fear as cowardice, fear as a problem to be solved. Um, and so, and, and yeah, this truism that you face your fears in order to overcome them is allows us to tell a story about being sort of bold or brave in the face of fear, staring it down. It also happens to be a big piece of, of most of the treatments that we do have for excessive or irrational fear. Almost all of them have some element of exposure to them. Um, you mentioned that, you know, there is this idea that fear is weakness and that your perspective has kind of changed on this. How, how has your view of fear changed? I see its necessity now. I never really thought about that before. I I only focused on the ways that it inconvenienced and humiliated me. Um, and I didn't see how important it is, how vital it is to our survival. And so at the start of the project, I had this sort of violent language about I'm going to conquer my fears, I'm going to defeat my fears. Um, and by the end, I really thought of it as more of a renegotiation. I did, you know, I did have excessive uh, fears that were, were damaging to my life in certain ways. And so I'm glad I did some work to try to moderate those responses, but, but fearlessness is not all it's cracked up to be. And, and by the end, I was more grateful for fear than I expected to be. <laughs> and that your fear was really interfering with your life in particular, you had had, have had a phobia, um, a fear of heights, um, and so a lot of your book actually deals with phobias. Do we know where phobias kind of come from? Is there an idea of a, like a neurological basis of phobia? They haven't settled on one explanation that I, that there's sort of broad agreement on. There are various theories, uh, on where phobias come from. And, and my sense is, that it's probably a combination of explanations and it can also like can vary by person it and individuals could maybe have even a mix of explanations within them it can vary by by phobia um so there's you know there's the evolutionary theory that this is sort of a vestigial from from our hunter gatherer days you know most of the classic specific phobias um are things like spiders snakes heights the dark enclosed spaces um, there, there are ideas about, um, genetic inheritance. Um, there are ideas about, you know, nurture inheritance, you know, sort of exposure to, to inhibited or, or anxious, um, parental figures. Um, there's, uh, there's a number of different explanations. There's even, you know, in my case, I found one explanation, possible explanation of fear of heights that was specific to the physiology of, of people who are acrophobic as, as having, um, the, the paper suggested there was a measurable difference in how we 
moves through the world, how we sort of understand our position in space, that we rely more heavily than the average person on visual cues to orient ourselves. And so when we're elevated and our, our horizons are sort of um, uh, compromised, <laughs> um, then we, we feel more vulnerable and feel like we might fall and sometimes we do fall and 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 there's this sort of feedback loop that develops into a phobia of, of sort of exposed slopes or heights like like the one i experienced um that a lot of the book covers and you ended up kind of at first kind of diying your own exposure therapy um which is a, as you mentioned a really combative way of addressing fear. Do you know, uh, can you talk about where exposure therapy comes from? Right. So it comes back to little Albert. Um, although uh, Watson and Rayner were not able to attempt to undo what they had done to little Albert. Uh, another researcher followed a few years later with an experiment on a boy called little that who became known as little Peter. Uh, Mary cover Jones pioneered it, the extinction of of fear conditioning. So little Peter was like Albert afraid of, of small furry creatures. And, um, but unlike little Albert, he came by that fear naturally. As far as we know. Yeah. She she didn't induce it. Um, and, uh, she just tried to undo it using, using the same kind of Pavlovian ideas of, but this time pairing, pairing the presence of, of a critter, with with his favorite snacks and then slowly bringing the critter closer and closer um showing him the critter in the presence of other children who were calm around it this sort of thing um in order to extinguish his fear and she was ultimately able to extinguish his fear and that became the basis for um her work wasn't noticed widely initially in the 20s but by the 50s it became the basis for a, a treatment known as systemic desensitization and or systematic desensitization and that became sort of the grounding for what we know today as exposure therapy which is this idea of incremental exposure to your fear stimulus gradual over and over trying to take it one step further each time until you're able to tolerate the presence of the fear stimulus without panicking and you kind of did a diy approach to exposure therapy for your own fear of heights um, what did you try and did it work? <laughs> so, yeah, I tried a couple of things. The first, um, was not incremental. The first was sort of a notion that if I could show myself, I had nothing to be afraid of, uh, by doing something fairly extreme and coming through it, I might just sort of be able to talk myself out of this fear. So the first thing I did was I went skydiving, um, which is not a recommended or effective form of exposure therapy, I have to say. And then, and then I did it a little more by the book. I, I tried to do some very basic beginner rock climbing um, and not pushing myself. This was the key, not pushing myself through the panic and trying to continue the climb regardless, but, but going only as far as I could before starting to feel afraid and then trying to go one step further the next time. So I used the same sort of basic climbs over and over again, not trying to get to the top, just trying to get, you know, one step further on the wall while remaining calm. That's, that's the goal of exposure therapy is not to learn to grit your teeth through your fear, but to not feel the fear at all to, um, 
to learn to remain calm, to build sort of a new pattern of calmness that will override the old panic pattern. It reminds me a little bit of uh, endurance training, mm-hmm. like like training for marathons or something where you just do the same, like you, you run a little further every day, <laughs> um, doing that kind of building up a tolerance to pain. In this case, it's kind of building up a tolerance to fear. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably a good analogy. Um, and you mentioned uh, Mary, I'm, I'm sorry, her last Peggy name. Jones. Yes. Yeah. Um, but there was also another researcher, Edna Foa, who kind of moved exposure therapy kind of forward into um, kind of the mainstream. Can you talk about her work? Yeah. So she was um, a sort of a protege of Joseph Wolpe, who was um, the researcher who sort of rediscovered Cover Jones's work and, and invented systematic desensitization. And in the 70s and 80s, Edna Foa adapted his work to her own system. Uh, his was very gentle and very gradual and and relied on what, what psychologists call imaginal exposure, which is so if you were afraid of a spider, you would maybe imagine the spider 10 feet away and then imagine the spider being eight feet away. And, and Dr. Foa's innovation was to add where possible a greater degree of in vivo exposure. So a, a real spider. And that's, that's more like what we think of as exposure therapy today. She, she called her method prolonged exposure therapy. Um, and, uh, developed it for for phobias and for um OCD and then she in the 80s and early 90s she adapted it for PTSD which I, again that where that's where imaginal exposure and in vivo exposure become more problematic because you can't always re-expose someone to the source of their trauma but what she ended up doing was uh ex- having imaginal exposure for say the actual if there was a, an act of violence, you would have imaginal exposure of, of that. Um, but using vivo exposure for the secondary effects, the avoidance. So if you had been, let's say, let's say you survive a mass shooting in a shopping mall. Um, the in vivo exposure would be not going near a gunman again, but, but going back to the mall. Um, so that's actually a great segue into kind of the next section of your book, which deals specifically with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, because both phobias and PTSD have a lot in common, um, but they're also different. How exactly are they different? Mm-hmm. I hadn't realized before I started this project how tightly linked phobias and anxiety and trauma all are. They're sort of cousins. Although I think in the latest DSM, PTSD was moved out of the anxiety disorders section, but they're still tightly linked. The difference is you know, despite Freud, phobias are not necessarily tied to memories from your past. They're not necessarily about a childhood event. They they can be, but that's not sort of the prevailing theory these days. Oh, Freud um, thought Freud was even worse than that. He thought it yeah. was because like a little kid desired his mom and therefore his dad was angry and therefore the child was afraid of horses because right. sure. <laughs> I see the logic. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally logical. <laughs> Um, so trauma is, is really driven by, by memory. Um, it's PTSD is, is about memories of an event where you either were deeply unsafe or felt deeply unsafe, or in some cases saw great harm occur to someone else. Um, and 
those memories don't sort of stay in storage the way they're supposed to. We, we call them intrusive memories. They can they can come out and kind of grab you by the throat and hijack your life. Um, and so the 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 reactions can be similar to a phobic reaction, um, but the source is completely different. The, the phobias are tend to be driven by external stimuli, and uh, and and PTSD generates its reactions often internally, sometimes triggered by something external, but not necessarily. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned that PTSD and phobias um, can both be treated by exposure therapy. And in a way, you um, so you actually have experienced PTSD and you sort of tried to DIY your own exposure therapy. You had a traumatic, a series of traumatic experiences while driving and just kind of kept driving. <laughs> yeah. um, but that did not work out. And so you ended up pursuing something called EMDR. Um, what is EMDR? Yeah, I should say I didn't have a full, bl- full blown PTSD, but I was certainly having um, reactions to my to my traumatic experiences uh, that probably didn't meet the bar for like a, a full blown diagnosis. But um, EMDR is eye movement and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is what it stands for. And it's one of a of a range of, of new newish therapies that we have for PTSD that was, it was developed in the late eighties and early nineties. And a lot of, you know, a lot of trauma therapies have kind of bloomed um, since the first Gulf war and with the ongoing wars or whatever they are now in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, EMDR in the simplest terms involves a therapist um, prompting you to move your eyes back and forth in a rhythm while talking you through your traumatic memories. And the idea is that the eye movement does something tangible to those memories that sort of puts them properly back in storage and stops them from intruding into your life in the way that traumatic memories can that, that moment where they jump out and and hijack you. And I have to say this sounds bit uh, totally woo woo. I wasn't going to say it, (laughs) especially because, you know, the original study um, that was done about this uh, was 70 volunteers and it had a hundred percent success rate, which sounds a little too good to be true. (laughs) Um, And so it did go through a period of controversy. Um, What kind of caused it to be accepted? Right. So, you know, it was, it was treated with extreme skepticism. Of course it was invented in Northern California um obviously <laughs> and uh, and it was treated with great skepticism through the 90s i would say and and depending on who you ask into the early 2000s and what changed was just clinical trial after clinical trial and study after study it kept working consistently better than the placebo effect um it's not uh it has not continued to have a 100% success rate of course uh, but it's, it's, it's sort of, it ground down its detractors just by virtue of the results, which were that it continues to be among the more effective trauma therapies that we have available to us. It, it works for, um, you know, more people than not and more people than, than the placebo effect. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating experience. It's now, it's now regarded as, as a fairly mainstream, broadly accepted therapy uh in in clinical circles and 
you know, there've been clinical trials uh, looking at the effectiveness, but I mean, it, it is, it's not a logical leap um, between no. eye movement and memory. Uh, do scientists, are there studies or anything that indicates exactly how this works? They don't understand the mechanism yet. And I, I found a number of people who are working on it from different angles. Um, some of them are sort of working to show the physical outcomes. You know, they've, they've found uh, measurable differences in, in gray matter, for instance, sort of density of gray matter before and after the treatment. So they were like, well, something happened here. Um, and uh, I know that some people are sort of pursuing the idea that there's, um, you know, there's, there's an echo, the eye movements echo what we do in our REM sleep. And we know that, that our sleep cycles um, are connected to memory storage and processing systems. And so there's some idea that maybe there's, there we're sort of simulating that with, with the eye movements. It's, it's people are, I don't want to say grasping at straws. Part of the problem is we don't understand trauma well enough yet to understand the changes that EMDR, um, you know, wreaks on trauma um and so it's a hard thing but but they're poking at it from various angles and they've sort of reached a point of we know that it works we just don't know why and they're trying to understand the mechanism now and you actually did end up undergoing emdr yourself um i was actually really interested because in the book you actually did a lot of things and you know before you ended up actually going to therapy um even though you've been to therapists before um i think in the book you don't really actually see a therapist until about two-thirds of the way through and i was kind of wondering why did you put it off mm. <laughs> avoidance <laughs> um yeah i it's a combination of things one was was financial um you know, therapy is expensive. I don't have, uh, I don't have benefits, uh, being self-employed. So paying someone $150 an hour, uh, was daunting. Um, one is, is sort of internal. I didn't think I had earned it. You know, I didn't think there was, I didn't think I had a right to be traumatized. I was, I was like, nothing happened to you. You know, I walked away almost without a scratch from this series of potentially fatal car accidents. Um, each one was a total write off of the vehicle and I didn't feel entitled to not be okay. Uh, and it took me a long time to really accept that it was, that I wasn't okay. Um, so I just, like you said, I tried to just keep driving and I thought it would pass with time and it didn't. I would, you know, if there was a rainstorm or, or, a, or snow or ice on the road, I would sometimes, um, pull over because I couldn't see because I was crying too hard. You know, I would be hyperventilating, having flashbacks, not always, but, but, but when I felt like the road wasn't safe and I was driving slower and slower, it was actually getting worse with time. Um, and so, and also living in Whitehorse <laughs> means there's a lot of precipitation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eight months of potential ice on the roads. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I didn't do it until I sort of had the book as an excuse. And then that helped me get past the, the financial concern and the sense of entitlement to therapy, I think. Um, and 
and you know, I didn't, I didn't want to feel like I was broken, you know? Um, and so saying, well, I'm doing this for my job was an easier way to get myself into a therapist's office. I think there was a lot, a lot going on there and in terms of internalized, you know, stigma and, and, and shame and, and, and that sense that I didn't have a right, a right to be messed up by this because nothing really bad had happened. And I mean, similarly, you did end up pursuing a therapy for your fear of heights, but you never actually pursued behavioral therapy um, for your fear of heights. Do you think there was still some internalized stigma going on there? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I never, I never even considered really getting professional help for the fear of heights because I felt like people would think it was silly. You know, it, it's not, uh, because I could have avoided the situations that triggered me pretty easily. It just would have involved giving up certain aspects of my professional and social life. Um, I, I think I would have felt silly saying, you know, walking into a therapist's office and saying, I, I keep trying to go hiking on the sides of mountains and I keep crying. <laughs> um, to me, it seemed like I should just stop trying to do that. And, and, uh, and then, and the money as well too, you know, there was, I, I, it was a real barrier for me to get past. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, destitute here. I could have afforded therapy, but it didn't seem like something that it made sense for me to spend money on. I mean, I think, I know, I know it was hard and I'm glad you pursued therapy. And I'm also glad that you're talking about it, um, in this book and on this podcast and talking about kind of the stigma and the stuff that made you put it off. I think that's, you know, really important. There are probably a lot of people in this world who, you know, say, Oh, I don't deserve therapy. I haven't done anything to deserve, um, or feel the stigma, um, and are kind of afraid or unable necessarily to get help. And so I'm really glad that you kind of covered that in your book and that you did end up pursuing help, uh, help both for yourself and also for the people who will read your book. I'm, I'm really glad too. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent one of those zeal of the converted people now who I just like encourage people to go to therapy all the time. <laughs> you know, to my friends, I'm like, well, have you considered therapy? <laughs> um, but what was really fascinating to me, um, was that when you ended up dealing with your phobia of heights, you decided to try a medication instead called propranolol. Um, and this is a beta blocker. It's used usually to treat high blood pressure. Um, but scientists in the Netherlands in particular are also using it to treat phobias. Um, can you talk a bit about propranolol and how it's supposed to work? Right. So this is a kind of a hybrid therapy that's been developed um by a clinician in Amsterdam, Merrill Kent. And it's not just the drug, it's the combination of the drug and some exposure. Um, so propranolol, like you said, it's a common beta blocker. I know people who've taken it before big presentations, you know, to sort of reduce their stage fright. It's a, it's a blood pressure medication. But what Dr. Kent does is she pairs it with intense exposure to the source of your phobia and what so to to back up a little bit we knew that um we've known for some time that there's a protein synthesis reaction involved in putting new memories into long-term storage and we knew that beta blockers could disrupt protein synthesis 
And what uh, a neuroscientist learned relatively recently is that protein synthesis is also involved in what's called memory reconsolidation, which is when we sort of pull long-term memories out of storage, look at them and put them away again. The putting away again also involves protein synthesis. So he was able to disrupt fear conditioning in rats using a beta blocker. He, the, the administering of the pill, if he exposed the rats and sort of triggered the memories of their fear conditioning, the pill would undo the fear conditioning, but it wouldn't undo the fear conditioning if the rat was just sort of static, if the rat hadn't had their fear conditioning triggered before the pill was administered. So, so it's like in, you know, when you're editing a file. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, exactly. which, you know, it's, it's kind of a silly analogy, but it's like editing yeah. a file. <laughs> yeah, the file has to be open um, and not in read-only mode. <laughs> um, it uh, so So Meryl Kent was like, oh, I bet I could do this on people. And <clears throat> ordinarily it takes more time, you know, but because propranolol is safe for use it didn't it didn't take much time to say to take this research on rats and say i'm going to apply this to humans and she has gotten some pretty remarkable results she she triggers your phobia pretty close to your sort of maximum level through exposure she exposes you to a stimulus gets you to like they told me that i needed to be at like an 80 to 90 out of 100 on my sort of personal panic scale and and then they give you the pill and something about the beta blockers interaction with the protein synthesis seems to sever the connection between your memories of past panics and your future panic response. And so it's like, you can still remember all the times you panicked before, but that pattern of repetition, that cycle of like, this is going to happen again and again has the, it's like the cord has been snapped. It's, it's very, it sounds very sci-fi and it's hard to explain, but, um, it's, it's this severing of the memory from the future. And you actually took propranolol. You, you did this yourself. Um, you went to the Netherlands. Um, can you walk us through your experience? Sure. So um, I had done a couple of consultations with them by Skype and by phone, and I had sent them some of my writing about my fear of heights because they needed to understand how to trigger me. <laughs> um, Joy. And I, was, yeah. uh, I was concerned uh, about how they would do this because most of my reactions are from sort of exposed slopes, and Amsterdam is like the flattest place on the planet. Um, so I wasn't sure, you know, we talked about maybe like a, an indoor rock climbing gym. We talked about, uh, maybe like a steep, uh, cathedral tower or something, you know, some medieval building. But ultimately what they did is they took me to a fire station and they put me in the bucket of the ladder truck and they sent the ladder up as high as it would go. <laughs> and not, not only were you doing this, you were actually doing this in public. I was, yes. I was being filmed by a documentary film crew uh, that happened to be there that same week. And so I had agreed to be one of the subjects that they filmed for their for their documentary segment about uh, Merrill's research. Uh, and there were also, you know, firefighters present. One of them was operating the bucket. <laughs> um, there, were, there were probably like eight or ten people watching this go down. Um, which uh which helped because I'm I panic more when I'm embarrassed. <laughs> 
or there's some kind of loop of, you know, start to panic, feel embarrassed, panic more, feel more embarrassed, uh, that helps, uh, you know, this was the one time in my life when I wanted to panic as fully as possible because I wanted the treatment to work. And did it work? It did. Yes. I, I went up in that bucket and I felt absolutely terrified and I came down, I could barely walk. My legs were shaking, took this pill, felt almost immediately calm. The drug uh, did its thing. And, uh, and then they told me, you know, go, go home. Don't get scared. Don't, you know, take a steep escalator in the Metro. Don't think about what just happened. Don't take any notes yet, which was a bit challenging. Uh, and come back in 24 hours. And the next day I went back to the fire station and was able to be completely fine in the bucket. I was taking selfies. I was enjoying the view. I, I was like, I was a different person the next day. It was surreal. And has it helped like further after that? Have you been able to, you know, hike and climb and do all the things that you want to do? Yeah, so far so good. I haven't pushed it really hard. I haven't like repelled off a cliff or anything. Um, but I went zip lining, which I would have expected to terrify me as a test, and I was fine. I have done some pretty steep hiking that I would have thought I would have done, like on hands and knees, you know, sobbing and, and snotty, and and was cautious but fine. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to feel that caution and learn to trust it because I keep expecting it to turn into panic. And, you know, Dr. Kent warned me though it will take me a while to learn that I'm no longer going to panic. My body still expects the panic. And you close out the book by talking about people who cannot feel fear. Um, these people are extremely rare, but they do exist. And one is a patient called SM. Uh, why exactly can't she feel fear in the way that many of us do? She has a rare genetic disease called Urbaquita. It's, it's incredibly rare. I think they've only documented maybe a couple hundred cases in the world. And in addition to, to various things that it does to your, to your throat and your skin, it infiltrates your brain and calcifies portions of your brain tissue. And it seems to particularly target the amygdala. So various Urbaquita patients have partially compromised amygdalas. Uh, SM's, SM is notable because hers is sort of perfectly compromised. You know, in the language of surgeons, it has perfect margins. It's been sort of neatly destroyed without any of the surrounding tissue also being destroyed. So it's as though she's had an amygdalectomy. She just doesn't have a functioning amygdala at all. And to be clear, the amygdala is the part of the brain that we tend to think of as as the seat of fear. Um, it yeah. is, yeah. you know, very heavily implicated in all of our fight, uh, all of our fear responses. Right. Yeah, it's the one that we understand as as assessing the threat and triggering the response. And what I found really fascinating was that scientists have obviously been studying SM a great deal. Um, and most particularly, they try to make her afraid and it doesn't really work very well. Um, <laughs> but it turns out that she can feel fear, just not at a lot of the things that many people fear. Um, what, what actually induces her sense of fear? Two things. One is that she's capable of fear for others. She, she is capable of concern for others' safety, but has no sense of her own safety. So they've never gotten her to respond to any sort of external fear stimulus 
spiders, snakes, scary movies, haunted houses, all this sort of thing she's utterly impervious to um, in, in, in the lab. And then in her personal life, they know that she's been exposed to all sorts of much scarier things than a haunted house and also been impervious. She's had a gun held to her head and didn't flinch. She's been strangled and assaulted. Um, and she doesn't experience these events as frightening. Um, she has no sense of personal self-preservation in that way whatsoever, but she expresses what we might call fear, uh, for her children's safety. And she has gone, she has sort of rushed into the fray to defend people from, from violence. So she's obviously capable of a sense of protection of others. And then the one time they've made her feel afraid for herself was when they found a way to trigger an internal alarm rather than external stimuli. They, um, they had her inhale uh, gas cut with carbon dioxide, not enough to hurt her, but enough to trigger your internal hey, you're breathing carbon dioxide alarm that we all have. And this is a common experimental technique that people's responses to vary quite widely. And people with quote-unquote normal brains sometimes find it uncomfortable or a bit alarming. Occasionally they might have a panic attack, but many people sort of just breathe through it and are maybe a bit discomforted, but fine. And SM had a full-blown extended full-on panic attack um, in response to this this gas, which was not... They, they predicted she would be impervious to it, and she wasn't, and they tried it on two other Urbaquita patients as well. They also had panic attacks. So they learned a couple of things, or a couple of avenues were suggested from this. One is that um, there must be some other way to trigger a fear response from internal factors beyond the amygdala. Um, and the other is that perhaps the amygdala also has a, a breaking or calming role to play because once she started to panic, she couldn't, she couldn't stop. Um, so they, they, the researchers are wondering if there's, there's avenues to explore here in terms of the amygdala, not only as triggering a fear response, but also modulating it. So, yeah, I wanted to kind of follow up on that. Um, you know, there people do still study fear. Um, there's a lot we don't know about fear. Um, so what kind of things are scientists really doing now? I know that they're looking into, in, in SM's case, she's not able to participate much in, in lab work anymore. She's getting older and, and her health is not good. But um, I know that they're looking into what else they can do with the carbon dioxide avenue of research, uh, not just for Urbaquita patients, but for all of us, um, if there's something that can be learned from this sort of harmless triggering of our internal alarm bells. Um, they are still trying to understand why it is that she was able to panic uh, without a functioning amygdala. Um, so there's, there's obviously, we thought that we had sort of the fear circuit pretty thoroughly mapped out, but there's obviously some pieces missing there that they are looking into. Um, yeah, there's, there's various avenues. There's a lot we don't know. Um, going back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, we still don't have a good understanding of, of trauma and, and how to treat it. There's, there's, um, so there's sort of clinical avenues and also just straight sort of, uh, uh, neurobiological avenues that they're going down. And I feel like we cannot end this interview without talking about our current situation, because here we are, or at least in my case, indoors, alone. 
Uh, some people in the COVID-19 pandemic have lost family members. Um, others have friends or family who are very ill. Everyone is afraid they might be next. Um, and not only that, many people have lost their jobs. They don't have kind of that anchor and sense of safety. And so for many people, this that we are living through right now might be their worst fear um, kind of come to light. Uh, and in this book, uh, you have acquired a lot of experience facing your fears, <laughs> going to therapy. Um, do you have any advice for people who are dealing with this kind of existential dread? Yeah, I think the first piece is to try not to be too hard on yourselves. Um, you know, it's so easy to beat ourselves up for being feeling fear and anxiety and it's natural. It's, it's natural anytime, but it's especially natural now, um, to be, to be kind of a mess about all this. You know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to be, it's not pleasant, but it's okay if you're lying awake at night with your heart beating too fast right now, sometimes, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think the first step is to kind of accept that these feelings are okay to have and then to start to work on trying to modulate them if you can. Um, whether that's, you know, telehealth with a therapist or, um, you know, like a meditation app, or I personally have taken up adult coloring books. And I, again, I would have rolled my eyes two years ago or six months ago even, but, um, I am, I'm finding when my, when my heart starts to race, when I start to worry about my family or my job or, you know, what's going to happen, how long am I going to be stuck in here? Um, I get up and I look away from the news and I go over to the coffee table and I just color for a few minutes and my heart rate comes down. So I don't, you know, that may not work for everyone, but, uh, but I think accepting the feelings and then finding ways to ease them, um, would, would be my advice. Uh, some trial and error probably involved in the easing, but, but the first thing is to try to let go of some of that, that shame and, 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 and sort of self-flagellation that is so easy for us to engage in about having these feelings. Well, Eva, thank you so much for talking with us. I hope it was a fearless experience. It, it was. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Eva Holland and her book, Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear, you can find links on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, have no fear. Subscribe, maybe follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And I know times are hard right now, but if you can, drop us a few dollars on Patreon. Your support helps keep the show going. If you can't, and I totally get if you can't, leave us a review or recommend us to your friends. That helps too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 